If you have your Bibles this morning, we're turning in our Bibles, and we're turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. So I ask you to join me there. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. And this morning, we'll be looking at verses 35 through verse 38. Matthew, chapter 9, verses 35 through verse 38 will be our text this morning. The title of the message is The Compassion of Jesus. The Compassion of Jesus. And in our text this morning, we see a special moment. We see insight into the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of a very busy pace, very busy season that Matthew is painting for us in his ministry. Looking in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary, scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Well, this is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God lives and abides forever. So we look into Matthew's gospel, chapter 9 this morning. What we find here is what Matthew is wanting us to see as he continues to point us to Christ. He wants us to see and believe and rest in for ourselves the compassion of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the compassion of Jesus. Our text today in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, is a summary statement, and it is a profound few verses of Scripture. It is a summary statement. It is a feature text on the compassion of Christ, but it is also a transition text as Matthew moves from one section to another. It is a summary statement on all that we've been studying in these miracles of the Gospel of Matthew. It is a feature text on the fact that it draws our hearts and our eyes to see the heart of Christ, to understand his feelings or his heart, his nature, if you will, if you will as he looks upon the lost, scattered sheep of Israel. Matthew particularly wants us to see his love, his mercy, and his pity. It's not only a summary statement, it's not only a feature text, but it is also a transition text as he moves from the teaching of Christ, his authority in his teaching, and the authority of his miracles, as he moves to the mission of his disciples, as he enlists disciples to serve with him. Christ here intentionally begins to move from the end of chapter 9 into chapter 10, to intentional discipleship to where he's no longer just simply teaching and preaching, but he's calling to himself a group of men that we will find are the apostles, true disciples, that he will begin to pour himself into preparing for after the cross. We want to remember the context as we look at verses 35 through 38. If you remember last week, we looked at the text where the mute man, the man who could not speak, his speech was restored to him. And if you remember there in verse 34, the Pharisees responded by saying, this is the work of the devil. 
He casts out demons by the ruler of demons. This is the response that he receives from many of the religious elite. And while Jesus does not fully respond to this, he'll wait till chapter 12 to break that down. In our passage today, he will answer his critics. Ultimately, he will give them an indirect rebuke. But what we see here in the ministry of Christ is that when critics are on the scene, he simply stays on task. He stays on mission. He will be able to say at the end of his ministry, Father, I have completed the work that you have given me to do. And friends, if you don't, don't take any practical application away from the message today, and I hope you will take much, remember this point. This is an important lesson for us. That when we experience difficulty, personal difficulty, when we are criticized or slandered, or some obstacle comes in the way of our ministry, instead of groveling over that, taking it personally, do the next right thing. This is what we see Jesus doing. In fact, this is what Jesus has previously taught, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, love your enemies. If you simply love those who love you, are kind to you, then what are you? You're no different than the scribes and the Pharisees. But how people will know that you're my disciples, that you have the kingdom of God within your hearts, is that you will love those who intend you harm. So here Jesus models what he teaches by staying on task, by doing good. That's what Paul tells us to do in Romans chapter 12. Overcome evil with good. Don't be distracted. Now, don't get me wrong, Jesus will respond ultimately in chapter 12, uh, arguing with them, pointing them to the truth and the fallacies of their arguments. But for here, we see a different portrait of Christ. The Pharisees are in the background, they're speaking against Jesus. Now Jesus teaches those who know him. He is benefiting, he is teaching them, and he's wanting to shepherd them, particularly his disciples. And as we move into this section, we're moving into a new section where Jesus is shepherding the heart of his disciples. He's showing them compassion for the lost. And so we'll frame our thoughts this morning around a couple of key points. Number one, his practice. His practice that we see in verse 35. Secondly, his perception. Oh, to be able to see as Jesus sees. We see his practice, his perception. Number three, we'll see his passion. Number four, his problem. And then lastly, number five, the prayer that Jesus instructs us to pray. First of all, I want you to note, number one, his practice that verse 35 tells us. This is a familiar verse that we've heard before. Look at, we, look at the text there with me. He says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. If that sounds familiar, it's because back in chapter 4, verse 23, Matthew has given us almost a word-for-word -word statement that is essentially the same. Matthew is giving us what's called, what the psalmist often does, an inclusio, a bookend, where he introduces in chapter 4, verse 23, this is what Jesus is about to do. This is what Jesus is doing. Now we've studied through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, 8, and 9, and we've seen that's exactly what Jesus did. 
And now we see that Jesus not only had a work to do, that he had done it, but he is continuing to do it. And that's what Matthew brings us back to here in verse 35. Jesus continues to go about teaching, preaching, healing all the diseases and the afflictions of the people. His practice that we'll note here is threefold. Notice there with me in the text. As Jesus went about all the cities and villages, his practice was teaching, secondly, preaching, and then thirdly, healing. And notice the comprehensiveness that Matthew gives to us, the comprehensiveness of his ministry. All the cities, all the villages, every sickness, every disease. Jesus' healing ministry is not like, was not like, what modern faith healing ministries look like today, just to put it bluntly. Commentators say that there was around 200 small villages and towns. You put it all together in this area of the region of the country. This is no small task as we consider. Matthew wants us to know the comprehensiveness of Jesus' teaching and healing work. He goes about teaching, preaching, and healing. Notice, first of all, his teaching in their synagogues. This is the point where Jesus always Began. Many people like to paint a portrait of Jesus where he's an anti-establishment type of individual revolutionary. What Matthew wants us to know is Jesus made it a pattern, a practice to go straight for the synagogues regularly, to gather with the Jews, to point them to the scriptures, to read the scriptures in their hearing, to exposit the scriptures, as Matthew has previously told us as he read from Isaiah. And he said, basically, the scriptures testify of me. And they would grow hostile towards him and want to kill him in response to that. Jesus' pattern was to regularly go and teach and read and preach the scriptures in the hearing of his people. Verse 36, the people he saw as a response were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. And the reason that they were helpless is that they did not know the Bible. They did not know God's word. Now they should have known it. You read the Old Testament, constantly the scrolls, the scriptures are being, quote, rediscovered. King after king after king in the Old Testament arise, and the scriptures make it clear that their hearts, some of them, begin to follow the Lord. They begin to follow the faithful practice of, of shepherding the people of God, but not fully. They would not tear down the Asherah. They would not tear down the high places, and over time, false gods and false worship would crowd out the true God of Israel, and God's word would be relegated to the side. In the book of Nehemiah, one of the key themes is as they rebuild the wall, that there's the theme, the rallying cry of the people to bring the book, to bring the scrolls, to rediscover God's law, his truth, and therefore have light to understand their spiritual condition, to walk in the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. The problem is the same today. Many have not been taught, have they? Many are lost sheep. They are ignorant. They are lost in their blindness. We don't say ignorance in the, in the sense of like an intellect. We mean they are blind to the truth. They're being taught. Don't get us wrong. They're hearing Bible teaching in different forms and ways, but it is human-centered, it is humanistic, it is self-help. It does not teach them, it is not the meat of the Word of God that it shows them who God is, what God has made us to be, and how we have fallen short of His glory and His standard. This is teaching the bad news, you could say. Teaching the condition of the natural man and why we even need the good news. 
And friends, this is his practice. Jesus was first and foremost a preacher of the kingdom of God. Jesus was the most powerful preacher, let's just remind ourselves, that has ever preached. There's, there's been Whitfield, there's been Spurgeon, there's been Edwards, there's been all types of men in history past. And no doubt God has used, and we like to think in our mind's eye that maybe, maybe Whitfield was the greatest evangelist. Maybe, maybe Calvin was the greatest expositor. Maybe Spurgeon was the greatest pastor preacher. Maybe, and so on and so forth. But friends, let's just remind ourselves, Jesus is the greatest preacher who has ever preached. The summary of his preaching was in Matthew chapter 7. They are stunned that he spoke with power and authority. And we think in our mind, what must that have sounded like? Because here is the word expositing the word. Here is the word made flesh preaching to us, explaining to us who he is. If anybody has ever, quote, as we often say, mastered the Bible, mastered the word of God, what must it have sounded like to hear Jesus as he gave the words that he was very intimate with? And he certainly inspired and knew his teaching. Secondly, his practice was preaching. He said, wait a second, I thought that's what he was doing. Well, I just said, certainly he's the greatest preacher who's ever lived. Maybe I got ahead of myself. But we see the distinction here that he preached the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the good news. Matthew wants us to know that the king is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The bad news has come first. The good news follows. The bad news is, is our state, the wrath of God being upon the wicked every single day, that all of us are sinners, that none of us have a natural bent towards God. We need to be reconciled towards God. But here he tells us that his practice was preaching. And some people may ask the question, well, what's the difference between preaching and teaching? And to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, a preacher from yesteryear, again, one of those greats that many think may be one of the greatest preachers that's ever lived, said, my friend to a seminary student, if I have to explain to you the difference between preaching and teaching, it's obvious you've never heard preaching. Preaching is something completely different. Teaching is instruction. It has to do with content. It is primary. It is what feeds and builds up the church. It is the breaking up of the bread, the slicing of the meat, and giving it to the children and the saints of God that we may grow as strong in the faith that is Christ Jesus. Now, preaching contains instruction, but it is more than instruction. Preaching is proclamation. Preaching is heralding. Preaching is an announcement. Preaching is there is a verdict that must be made. Preaching says you must respond. And I am not doing a good job as a pastor preacher if you can hear me preach and sit there and say, so what? And that's not on you. That's on me to bring you to a verdict, to bring you to a point of this is what the word of God says. We must respond in faith. We must repent of our sins. We must confess whatever the Holy Spirit shows us. We must follow in obedience our Lord's command. Preaching is the point, one commentator has said, where teaching becomes personal. So as a matter of fact, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, preach the word. Preach and be ready in season and out of season. And God has ordained both for the building up of his bride, for the feeding of his people, teaching and preaching. And here we have the great King of Kings and Lord of Lords doing exactly that. Bringing about the good news of the long-awaited King who is here, the kingdom of God is present. So we see his practice that Matthew wants us to know. This is a, a summary text. This is a feature text. 
This is a reminder text of this is what it's all about. So in a sense, you could say we're going week by week and we've, we've been in the weeds. We now zoom out for a second and Matthew says, hey, hey, reminder, this is the bookend to what I introduced earlier in chapter 4. Jesus is a tour de force. He is the Son of God walking among men, healing, teaching, and preaching. That brings us to number three. Healing every sickness and every disease among the people. These were literal diseases, of course, as we've been looking at. Healing the blind, healing the woman with the issue of blood, raising the dead, touching, healing, responding. But it also includes spiritual as well. Now, if you remember in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist, in his moment of doubt, sends messengers to Jesus. And he says, how can we know that you really are the Son of God? And Jesus responds to him with the prophecy, the blind receive sight, the lame will walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And as we've been seeing, Matthew's saying, look to Jesus. This is the king. And this is how you can know he is the Messiah and that he is fulfilling everything the Old Testament has told us about who the Messiah is and what he will do. Jesus' healing ministry is unlike any other healing ministry that has ever existed, both then and now. He virtually expelled demon possession from the region. He killed, not killed, he healed everyone. And we see that comprehensiveness that he says he healed all in that area. There's such a comprehensiveness here that Jesus now comes to the point to where he shifts his focus, shifts his transition, and begins to pour himself into his own disciples. And we'll see that where he begins to call them by name one by one. Matthew has already pointed us to when Jesus called him. Number one, his practice. Secondly, I want us to see his perception. His perception there in verse 36. As Jesus moved throughout Galilee teaching and preaching and healing the people, one thing was a constant. He was moved in his, in his emotions by their condition, their pitiful condition. Number three, or excuse me, number two, we see his perception, verse 36. And when he saw the multitudes... When he saw them. Now, it's basic, but I don't want to skip over it. But when he saw the multitudes. We consider that word seeing. So oftentimes we can see people, but we don't actually see them. You know what I'm talking about? And I don't think anything maybe brought this to the forefront faster or quicker, or maybe it's been there, but we realized it in a different way with COVID. We all just turn into robots. And now hear me out. Just hear me out. When we put the masks on, we also lost a sense of our humanity and how we treated people and how people treated us. We quit looking at people in the eye. We kind of hid behind our, our features. I'm not trying to demonize all that. I'm just simply saying there was a sense of common niceness, humanity that was lost at all. And I'm not sure if we fully regained it. Just the basics of relationships, customer service, dealing with strangers. And I think we... If we have insight, we can recognize in ourselves that at times we don't see people. Oh, we see forms, we see figures, but we don't truly see them. We don't even probably look them in the eye. Here, 
the Holy Spirit inspires for, inspires for us using Matthew, that Jesus saw the multitudes. He saw them with eternity in view. As we'll see, he's also the, the Lord of the harvest. Jesus certainly knows the plan of the Father. He knows his purposes. But Jesus is living with this reality that there is another world in view. There's heaven and hell in the balance. He sees these lost sheep. They're hungry. They're broken. They're hurt. And it moves him. This is his, his perception. There's a phrase that we quote often, to have insight, you need to be on sight. And it's interesting how we can have opinions about people, the broken, ministries, addiction programs, homeless programs. We can have opinions about neighborhoods and, and people, and we can completely miss the need because we don't take time to see. Here we have Jesus taking the time to see. This is a vignette where he stops, and Matthew wants us to know that he sees their condition. How does he respond? This is God in flesh. How does he respond? That leads us to our next point, verse 37, his passion. Our text tells us that he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Now, this tells us not only who Jesus is, but friends, let me remind you, Jesus is 100% God, 100% man. It is in, in Christ that we see the heart of God played out before us. And living this principle that our eye affects our hearts to take time to see, to, to slow down and to comprehend and to look at the details will move our hearts. And I think in one sense, we know that. We're the people who sit on our couch and we're moved by the Humane Society commercial that plays on loop and it's slow talk and these horrible pictures of, of animals who've been abused and tattered. We get it. You're, you're not human if you don't have compassion for that. And so there we go. We march on down to adopt the, the fifth, to become the forever home for the fifth animal that we probably don't need. Now, my point is this. We are easily moved with compassion. And if we're truly human, we know, we know that. We know our hearts. And the truth is, so many times, we don't want to be moved with compassion. We just move on. We look past. We're busy. But here we find that the principle of our eye taking time to perceive, to be on sight, gives us insight. It affects our hearts. That's what Psalm 19 verse 8 says, an inversion of this principle. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. What we see with our eyes and what enlightens it affects our hearts and causes our hearts to rejoice. Psalm 131 verse 1, the psalmist says, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty. Making this connection between our eyes and our heart. But maybe the best connection is Lamentations 3.51. What Jesus is, is fulfilling here is what Lamentations 3.51 describes. I'm going to quote the King James Version. My eye affects, Jeremiah says, my eye affects my heart. New King James Version. My eyes bring suffering to my heart. Soul To see with the eye makes a difference in the heart. Verse 36, but when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. 
They were shepherdless sheep. And as we saw in verse 23, this is the, mo- the essence of our relationship with Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God. We are those who are his sheep. He and he is our shepherd. And here we see Christ moved with compassion upon shepherdless sheep, those who are unfed, uncared for, and completely helpless. Remember, let's make the connection of Jesus going into the synagogues and teaching and preaching. And what he's moved with is the fact that here is his people who have not been fed the word of God. Here are his people who generationally are lost in blindness. They cannot see spiritually, and they are like sheep having no shepherd. John chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus gives us the classic text, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and they know me, and I am known by them. Very quickly, as we move from his compassion, another point I want to pull out from this text is the image of shepherdless sheep throughout the scriptures. This has strong Old Testament roots, and I want us to turn, if you don't mind, to Ezekiel chapter 34. This is a theme that God gives towards his people, a complaint that he has towards his people, and part of the judgment that God brings upon his people. They will not listen, and so he brings judgment upon them. They are scattered. Numbers chapter 27, verse 17 He tells Moses, who was once a shepherd himself, Moses, who prayed for a successor, and it turned out to be Joshua, that he desired that the people not be like sheep without a shepherd. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 17, again with Micah, who predicted predicted the death of King Ahab. He said this, he said, I saw all of Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. But we see maybe the most sobering text as we make this theme of God's concern for his sheep, his people, of being without a shepherd, we see the, one of the main reasons why that is. Notice with me, we have a, a lengthy passage here, verse 34. We're going to walk through it quickly. Here we see God speaking to Ezekiel. Notice with me, verse 2, Son of man, prophesy, notice here, against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel, notice here, who don't feed the sheep, but feed themselves. Woe to them, should not the shepherds feed the flocks. You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened. This is the work of the shepherd. The the weak you have not strengthened. Nor have you healed those who are sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back those which are driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. And he goes on to say, verse 6, My sheep wandered through all the mountains, and on every hill, yes, my flock was scattered over the whole race of the earth, and no one was seeking for or searching them. And what Jesus wants his people to know is, your shepherd is here. This is my condemnation to those who should have been leading you, who should have been feeding you. Most of the Old Testament prophets were continually selling out for ten shekels and a shirt. Just moving on. Many of them had their price. Right money would come their way and they would be bought out and serve 
Not God, but man. Here we see that God's chief problem is that these shepherds who should have been feeding, tending, caring, and shepherding were consumed with themselves. And here we see an indictment not only on many of the Old Testament shepherds for the people of God, but here we see in Matthew's gospel Jesus' angst, his anger towards the scribes and the Pharisees. In Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, you don't have to turn there, he denounces the wicked shepherds of Israel and even predicted the killing of the good shepherd who would come. And this is a text that Matthew quotes, where Jesus quotes this very same text in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, where Jesus makes reference, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. One other passage I want you to look at just very quickly is John chapter 10. John chapter 10, where Jesus again gives a fuller discourse on this theology of shepherding. We see why he's moved. We see what he calls himself. In John chapter 10, he wants his people to know, I am the true shepherd. I am the true under-shepherd who loves you, who will lay down his life, not for himself, but who will lay down his life for his sheep. John chapter 10, in verse, beginning, let's see here, verse 12. Uh, excuse me, begin with me, verse 11. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling is he who is not a shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. But here's the contrast. I, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep and am known by my own. Here, Jesus is this true shepherd. He has a heart of compassion for his people. He is moved at the lost sheep of Israel. So we see Jesus' understanding, his perception, his pattern. Now we see in verse 37, his, his passion He's moved with compassion. And he sees his people. And now the text begins to tell us what he felt. We see what he saw. Now we feel what he felt. And this shows us the heart of the God-man, Christ Jesus. Now this word, he was moved with compassion, is maybe the most common description that describes the heart of God in the Gospels. It is the most characteristic emotion of Jesus' heart, you could say. It's used 13 times in the Gospels, but Matthew uses it five key times, particularly here. Now stay with me here. He was moved with compassion. We think we know what that means, but what does that mean? The word for compassion means the bowels. Yes, the bowels. In the Hebrew understanding, it was the seat of emotion. So whereas we constantly talk about our heart, the Hebrew understanding was, I love you with all my bowels. Now that sounds odd. We get it. But stop and think about it for a second. If you actually, husbands, next Valentine's Day, made a card for your wife, and instead of putting a fake symbol of a heart, if you actually drew out the heart muscle, she would be horrified. So let's not act like it's any more weird, okay? It's all words. It's all language. But stay with me. 
He was moved. He was moved with compassion. That means his bowels were stirred. We often use this in our own way when we say, when we receive the news, it felt like a gut punch. We experience it. We're sick to our stomach. We use the same word. The root word for this word compassion, from what I understand, is the same word for mercy. You could say it like this. Mercy is the action performed but here, where compassion is used, it is the feeling that is experienced. We are, have already seen mercy demonstrated where we saw the two blind men. If you remember, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on us. They didn't mean, Jesus, have sympathy for us. Jesus, do something. Heal us. Show action. Here, this word is a similar word, but it is the feeling behind the action. And so what we see here in this text is Matthew giving us a full composite of the Savior. He did merciful things, and he has compassion upon their state. We see what he does. Here in this text, we see how he felt. Now, don't get me wrong. We live in a culture who idolizes feelings. We are driven by feelings. Everybody describes their lots in life or I feel like, and we certainly understand the critique of our modern moment is that it is feelings driven. But let's not lessen the text. Just because our modern culture needs to be critiqued in these particular ways where we're overly petty, in a lot of other words we could describe, let's not minimize the text here. This describes the heart of God. This describes how he feels towards the lost sheep. J.C. Ryle says this, he says, That loving heart of the Savior could not see things and not truly feel with a heart of love. So we see here in verse 37, he was moved with compassion. I want us to look at two other key words here. He was moved with compassion for them because, why? Because they were weary and they were scattered. This word weary has a root meaning of flaying, skinning. It's derived from being severely harassed or severely troubled. And there's many ways we could take this, but bottom line, we're just going to take it for the effects of sin. There's no doubt that there are all types of troubles upon these people of Israel. But their chief problem was that they were lost. Their chief problem is they're pursuing idols. Their chief problem is that they buy one more thing, it will fulfill their souls. Their chief problem was the effects, the compound effect of sin in their life and not having a Savior. They were worn out, ripped apart, and they're not being shepherded and cared for and given the truth of God. That's the word weary. Then we see he had compassion not only because they were weary, but because they were scattered it means they're utterly thrown down, prostrate, and, and helpless. And Jesus sees the multitudes in being battered, uncared for, you could say abused. The very religious leaders who should have been loving them and shepherding them, shepherding them and providing for them have abused them. They have been absolutely brutalized. And here we see the heart of God towards them. He is moved with passion, or specifically, compassion. So what are we to do? What happens? Well, look with me at verse 37. We see the problem. He turns to his disciples, and then he has this, doesn't go into a long lecture, a long commentation, a commentator, excuse me, commenting on his feelings. He just quickly goes to the heart of the problem. 
Then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. One other passage I want you to turn with me. We've looked at a couple, so thank you for your patience. Let's go back to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. And look with me just very quickly at a cross-reference passage where Jesus again makes the same comment. He turns to his disciples and he says, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What's so interesting about this is that it's the same problem today. It's a continual problem. We see that the need is just as great as ever. And yet the workers are just as few as ever. Now this isn't a pastor haranguing his people this morning about do more, try harder. We're just looking at the text. And Jesus wants us to know in the greater scheme of things, in the gospel harvest, look with me over in John chapter 4, verse 27. Jesus has just been interacting and discipling and sharing the gospel there with the woman at the well. And verse 27 picks up there. And it says, at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? The woman then left with her water pot, went her way into the city, and said, come to the, said to the men, Come see a man, speaking of Jesus, who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Then he drops down, it says there, uh, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of the Father who sent me and to finish his work. And do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? But behold, I say to you, look up, lift up your eyes, and look around, look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and the other reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Here again, Jesus wants us to know that the problem is real. To look up and open up your spiritual eyes, friends. That Grace Church would, as we apply this to our hearts, would look up and look out and see that the fields are white unto harvest. But just hold on a second. I know you're ready to sign up. I know we're ready to go out and, and to do something. But then notice what Jesus says. As we conclude, we look at verse 38, and we see the prayer that he instructs. And here is a unique passage in that Jesus doesn't give us a model for how to pray, but he tells us to pray very specifically for something. Verse 38, Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send out laborers into his harvest. Now here we have a title for Christ. The Lord of the harvest, one of the many names for Christ. As we look here, we see that Jesus knows what is to come. Jesus knows that every guilt-laden person, every sin-bearing person in these large crowds that he is weeping for is heading for the day of death, the day of judgment. Now, as we look at this text, we see that Jesus instructs his disciples to pray. This is so interesting. We want to do. But Jesus says, pray. H.B. Charles has a book title. He's a pastor in Jacksonville, Florida, a wonderful pastor, but he has a book title that goes like this. It happens after prayer. 
it happens, speaking to the work of God, it happens after prayer. There's many things we can do after we pray, but you cannot do something greater than to simply stop and pray. Why don't we pray? It's a great question for us, isn't it? We're busy. We're undisciplined. But yet here we see a pattern where Jesus instructs us to pursue what we would call in our grace life, our growing in grace and Christian life, the spiritual discipline of prayer. And so it brings a reality that many of us are uncomfortable with. We're often not disciplined in prayer. And that is why Paul told Timothy, discipline yourself. First Timothy, I believe it's chapter 4, verse 3. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Here, Jesus gives intentional instruction to pray to the Lord of the harvest. And what are we to pray? We're to ask him to send out laborers into his harvest. And here is the ingenious aspect of Christ's teaching. When you begin to pray, remember we said earlier, to have insight, you need to be on site. To begin to have a burden, just begin to pray. You will find, friends, as you begin to pray for a need, as you begin to pray for a region, as you begin to pray for some people, Lord, send some people to minister to them. Lord, would you send someone to help them? At some point, you'll feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit that says, why are you praying for something that you haven't done? Why are you praying for something that you yourself are not willing to do? Here, we see Jesus instructs his disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And at the beginning of chapter 10, we find that he sends out them to the harvest. So it's not to say there is no labor involved. It's not to say that we don't go. We certainly do. In fact, Jesus is going to send them to go out into the harvest field, to those fields that are white unto harvest. But here we see the very clear instruction to hit pause and to pray, to seek the Lord of the harvest, to do what glorifies his great name, and then to consider in our own hearts what he would have us to do. I've experienced this, and I'm sure you have too. Very early in our marriage, Charity and I were unclear about the direction that the Lord would have for us. And we were pretty sure, leaning towards it would be overseas, some type of overseas work. We had some very dear friends, one uh, being said, but one particular couple was going to Mali, West Africa. If you know anything about Mali, West Africa, it's a very hostile region. It's very, ISIS has a very strong presence there, more now than it did then. Uh, this was all just, just before ISIS. They weren't quite doing the televised head, beheadings on TV and all those types of things. This is before all of that. And they said, would you pray with us, all of the close friends? We've been advised by our mission board. We cannot go unless another couple goes with us. We need to go in a, in a team. They had two couples. They needed one more couple. And so having a heart for them, having a heart for the cause of Christ, having a heart for missions, but not having a heart for Africa per se, like that wasn't our calling. We didn't feel the Lord calling us to go to Africa but we begin to join with them in prayer. We begin to say, God, you know their needs. They need support. Lord, you know they need another couple. They're ready to go. It's like they're being stopped. Lord, why are you stopping them? And we would pray and our marriage, we had just recently got married and we're praying together and establishing all these rhythms and routines. And what do you think began to happen? So we begin to pray. Hey, hey, guys, have you got any contacts? You got any leads? Is the Lord answering that prayer? What's an update? Nothing. 
nothing. We've got a survey trip coming up, but pray for that. Maybe the Lord will bring up somebody in time for the survey trip and they can go with us and they can see the work themselves. So a group of us begin to pray and three of us particularly begin to consider the call ourselves. In our heart, we begin to think, well, Lord, we're not truly being transparent if we're asking you to provide and yet we're not willing to go ourselves. So we said, Lord, I'm going to put our proverbial golden fleece out there. If you want us to be a part of this, you will provide because we didn't have the money. Next day, I get a phone call and my friend asked me, would you like to go to Africa? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, a businessman that I know has said, I understand that you've got some acquaintances and some friends that would be interested in going with you. Just tell them their way is paid if they'll go with you. Well, that prayer request to the Lord of, Lord, if you'll provide, then we'll go. All of a sudden, you swallow deeply and you say, okay. And that's all that we experience. But my point is this, praying about it, asking the Lord to provide, very quickly our heart followed with it. And something that we never thought we would be doing, we were doing. Next thing we knew, we're all on a plane, and three of us prospective individuals with families are looking at possibly coming and being that third additional family with them. And something happened on day one. And on day one, the car that we're, we were in broke down. We're out in the middle of nowhere. And they sent a rental car replacement, and it did not fit all of us. And so two of us were going to have to wait until another car could come. And the other two would go on. The two that went on wound up being the ones who ultimately went to stay and do the work. The other two of us went and did other ministry. <laughs> we did other things. But uh, we had no clear leading. We had no clear direction. We had no open doors. We just felt like the Lord said, I was just testing your heart and testing your faith and testing you to see whether what you said was true or not. And I'm just, I'm not trying to brag, I'm simply saying, what a, a faith builder that was. It's almost scary of just saying, be careful what you pray for. And then when the Lord answers it, he will test your heart to say, all right, you're praying for it, but are you willing to do what you're asking others to do? Friends, how many of us in this room are praying for lost loved ones, and yet we ourselves haven't shared the gospel with them? Don't come to the church and ask the church to, to pray for your lost loved ones. And sure, come to the church and um, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. But if you yourself aren't willing to do it and haven't done it, you follow the Lord in faith. You share the gospel. You minister. And we'll join with you. And may God truly answer the prayer overall. No doubt about it. But I'm interested to know how often we begin to serve the Lord, but we haven't prayed. We begin to ask others to do something that's on our heart, but yet we ourselves haven't done it at all. And here we have Jesus' instruction in verse 38. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What a convicting prayer. What a convicting instruction. May the Lord help us as we apply it to our own hearts and lives. Jesus wants, us, wants his people to know You've been without a shepherd. You've been abused. You've been harangued and harassed. You're emaciated. You're lost. You don't, you don't have a steady diet. You're lost in your trespasses and sins. But your shepherd is here. And friend, I want you to know this morning, if you are lost in your trespasses and sins, your shepherd is here. He says, I am the shepherd. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Look to Jesus, run to Christ, 
And he will be your shepherd. And all the places you've looked for a shepherd and haven't found it, due to all types of things, run to Christ and he will save you. Yes, even you. You know how we know? Because he saved us. Those of us who by faith have come to him and experienced the transforming power of the gospel, we stand with him and say, yes, look to Jesus and live. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the compassion of Christ. We thank you for the heart of our God as we see that this is your passion. This is why your anger was upon the scribes and the Pharisees, those who should be leading the people were AWOL, or even worse, selfish and negligent. Father, what a rebuke this is for all of us. Father, as the fathers of our home, help us to be the chief pastors, if you will, pointing our wives and our children to Christ. As the pastors and elders and deacons and leaders of this church, may we be found faithful to give the people the word of God. Father, as the people of Grace Church, may we be moved with compassion as we think about those that we know, people right here in Kingston, Tennessee, that we work with and live with, who are like lost sheep without a shepherd, and yet we've not spoken the truth of grace to them. Father, forgive us for the sin of praying for something or asking others to do what we have not done ourselves. Would you forgive us for being negligent? Would you forgive us for being cowardly? Would you forgive us for wanting someone else to do what is our job to do? Father, we do pray that if anyone is here this morning that is lost, your spirit has been working in their heart, they now see Christ and his beauty and his glory, that they would look to him in faith. Would you show them their sin, the sin that they once loved, may they now hate, Father, and resist it, repent of it, and turn to Christ and rest in him and him alone. May you bless your word. It's in Christ's name. Amen.